0: turn with you now if you would in your bibles to the book of acts Uh, if you're new here to hope you're visiting today that's what we do we work through uh, books of the bible front to back we are in a series on the book of acts sometime in early spring we'll be moving to the book of judges Uh, but for the moment we are in acts 19 if you're using the blue church bibles that would be 1181 and uh, we are picking up in verse 21 where there is a riot going on. Acts 19, verse 21. Here now the reading of God's word. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew... For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious religious, or blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, as we look into your word, may you show us our own hearts. May your word, Lord, act as the cleanest, the brightest, most accurate mirror to show us who we really are before you, a holy God, and then show us Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we work through the passage, we're going to uh, highlight uh, three themes. Uh, the theme of the day in this passage uh, is the problem of idolatry. And so we're going to look at how to discern idols, how to disclose idols, and number three, how to destroy idols, how to discern, disclose, and destroy Really, the second one would be better, expose idols, but that would mess with my alliteration. So I'm going with disclose, uh, because that's what pastors do. Now, first, how to discern idols. I have a subtitle for this point. Uh, Here's the full title of the first point, how to discern idols, it's all Pastor Bob's fault. (laughs) How to discern idols, it's all Pastor Bob's fault. Now, here's what I mean. Paul, the Apostle Paul himself, he gets mentioned here, as we'll see, but he himself really isn't in the passage. There's a moment where he wants to address the crowd, but his friends won't let him do that. None of the disciples really makes an appearance in these verses. They're mentioned, but they don't make an appearance. The name of Jesus does not appear in this passage. The name of God, Yahweh, or Lord, or whatever, does not appear in this passage. The only familiar name to us is, verse 26, this Paul. It's all Paul's fault. He's the one, you see, that causes this riot. We are going to have to riot because of what this Paul is saying both in Ephesus and throughout Asia. But he's not even around. Uh, uh, For Demetrius, there wouldn't be a riot going on if it wasn't for this guy Paul and his preaching. And make... No mistake about it, when you are shepherded by a caring and careful pastor like Pastor Bob, don't be surprised if you're tempted as well to have a moment of simultaneous awareness, simultaneous guilt, simultaneous feeling bad, and suddenly you think, it's all Pastor Bob's fault. I came to him wanting help, and all he did is show me my idol. Because so often what is wrong with us, as we say here at Hope, is is when something else is on the throne. When something so often, so frequently goes wrong in the life of a Christian, so often the reason it is going wrong is that something else is sitting on the throne. Even for the Christian, we can allow something else to climb on the throne of our lives. That seat in the heart Of greatest importance. And and so there may be a moment where Bob has gently shown you something not God is sitting on your throne. And brothers and sisters, we call this idolatry. Idolatry is when something else has become more important to you than God. Idolatry is when something has become more important to you than the Lord that's why it's command one, have no other gods. Number one, have no other gods. If you do, if you have other gods, you're going to want to break some of the other commandments. If you, if you have other gods, you are going to want to lie at times. If you have other gods, you will want to covet other things. If you worship something other than God, you'll be tempted to steal it. So that part of Pastor Bob's care in counseling is to discern your idols. And once in a while, you're going to be tempted to say, just as Demetrius did, it's all Pastor Bob's fault. Now look at how Demetrius is so worked up because you see the word is out. Paul names names. He names names when he confronts idols in Lystra, you'll remember in Acts 14. Again at Philippi in Acts 16, Paul names names. But most famously, he does this in Acts 17 at Athens. If you just flip back a page in your Bible, the Blue Bibles, it's page 1179 there at verse 24, uh, Paul is walking there through the Agora, the, the marketplace of the Areopagus. It is the Fifth Avenue. It is the Nassau Street and Wall Street. It is the Pennsylvania Avenue of his day. And he's noticing, he's naming, he's recognizing, he's discerning the idols of the culture. And as you go through not only Acts, but, but Paul's letters, these, these Gentiles, Gentiles, by the way, who do not know the Ten Commandments, don't know, haven't heard perhaps that they are to have no other gods but Yahweh, uh, Paul is still showing them, even though they are Gentiles, that they are worshipers. That that is common to every human being in this world. We are made to worship. Acts 17, verse 24, here's the kind of preaching that Demetrius was hearing that got him so worked up. Here's what Paul said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What discernment you see that Paul had. Your gods, the gods of your own making, There are no gods at all. That's the point he's making. And this threatens, you see, here in Ephesus, this threatens their pocketbooks. This threatens their vocation, the work that they do as silversmiths who make the idols of the day. This threatens their entire worldview. Their entire worldview is threatened. Now you say, but wait a minute, that was then. This is now. We don't live in an animistic culture. We don't live in a polytheistic culture. This is a secularized culture. We have no gods. People don't believe in gods anymore. They hardly believe in the god that we have typically always worshipped in these parts of the world. So why in the world would you say we still have to preach about idolatry? Why would you say we even have to counsel about idolatry? One of the key scri- uh, insights of scripture from Genesis onward is that we are made to worship. Human beings are made to worship. We are made for worship. That is how we're constructed. Uh, so, that, so that for Paul, in the Agora, there is no neutrality for anyone. He's looking at all the idols that are being worshipped because he's presuming that everyone in Asia, in Uh, The Greco-Roman world in Ephesus is a worshiper. No one can ever be said to not be a worshiper. To be human is to worship. Therefore, I want you to perhaps do a study on this. When you see Paul leave the synagogue after the teaching that he does there, and so then frequently going into the marketplace, watch See if he ever preaches out in the marketplace, out in the world, out among unbelievers. See if he ever doesn't include idolatry as the problem. I don't think we should ever avoid thinking about idolatry as the problem for us as well. Because when you share Christ with someone, if they don't know God, or like Bob, you counsel Christians who do know God, but are living, if you will, in misalignment with God's commands. That means that something else has functionally become their god, is has pushed God off the throne. Not that they actually can, but we have hearts that want to invite other things onto the throne room of our lives. And so, so so the Christian doesn't have to introduce to somebody, let me tell you about worship. Let me tell you about religion. Let me tell you about worshipping a god You can presume those things when you talk to somebody because we're all actively doing it. This culture and every culture is filled with idols. More than that, every culture, one of the Bible's presuppositions, every culture is based on idols. So that whether you're in Moscow or Beijing, Hollywood or Washington, Seoul or Pyongyang, San Paulo or Jakarta, every culture not based on the holiness and the grace of God is going to be based on some created thing in God's place. Every culture looks to something to save it because there simply are problems in the world. Every culture looks to something to give it meaning, something to give it identity. In one of his books, Tim Keller says, every culture has its idols, every gender has its idols, every class has a set of idols, every race has its idols, and then nested inside those complex of idols, every individual has a set of idols. Paul knew the idols of his day. My question for you is, do you know the idols of your culture? and then nested inside that, do you know the idols of your own heart? Would you be able to name them honestly? When you look to some created thing to give you what only God can give you, meaning purpose and worth and identity, when you look to anything to give you what only God can give you, you're in idolatry. You're in idolatry. So the question is, how do you know? How do you discern what your idol is? The quickest way is first, ask yourself this. What is it that I want or that I have that if I can't have it or I lose it would make my life meaningless? What is it that I want or have that if I can't have it or I lose it would make my life meaningless? This is a hard question. Because this can be good things. Let's say you're here today and you have a spouse that you love. Some of us might say, if I lost this person, my life would be meaningless. Now that loss would be bad, and your spouse is a is, is a gift of God to you. But if it would make your life meaningless, you may have made a good thing the only thing, and therefore you may have made an idol of your spouse. Some of us do that. What if you've asked this question and you can't think of anything? What if you you still haven't gotten to the heart of what your idols are? All I can say is, be like our friend Demetrius. Be like our friend Demetrius. I doubt Demetrius would have said, now this is a guess. This is... Extra biblical gift today. <laughs> I bet, you know, if I if I walked up to Demetrius and I would say, what is your idol? I doubt he'd even say it was Artemis. You know, silversmiths, maybe his craft, what he can do with his hands, the money he makes, could have been a bunch of different things. But suddenly when it looks like Artemis and then the money and his craftsmanship are suddenly on shaky ground, suddenly... Suddenly, Artemis is his God, you see. How do you know? What makes you angry? What, when taken away from you, makes you angry? What, in other words, creates a riot going on in your heart when it gets pulled away? Now you're getting at it. Now you're really close finding out what it is, because now you're close to what has functional rule, what has functional dominion over your heart. And look, by the way, don't really blame Bob for everything. Uh, Yes, Demetrius blames Paul, but don't miss the point. Everyone is creating their own idol. Everyone sees Artemis the Great in their own way. Uh, The sociologist Robert Bellis says that what it means to be an American these days is to feel like no one has a right to tell you who your God is. No one has a right to tell you what to believe, or to shape your own spirituality, or to tell you what the faith once delivered to all the saints should be anymore, such that we could even say that it is the faith for all the saints. To be an American means getting to make God over into your own image, Bella says, rather than allowing God to make you over into his. See, we're all breathing that cultural air into ourselves. We're, and and, and on all somebody like a Pastor Bob may do and counsel to you is to point out as delicately and, and, and sweetly as he can, pull that thread and say, maybe it's this one. And if that makes you mad, thank Pastor Bob because <laughs> he just found it. He's just holding up a mirror. Number two, how to disclose, as we said, maybe better, is how to expose your idols. Now, just because you can name your idol doesn't mean that you've exposed it. Just because you can name your idol doesn't mean that you've exposed it. Let me give you an illustration, by the way. uh, There's a bit of a spoiler alert here, illustration from The Wizard of Oz. If you want to show this to your kids, I'm about to destroy the movie, okay? All right, so put your fingers in their ears or whatever. Okay, Um, you know that Dorothy and the lion and the tin man and the scarecrow, they can all name the idol. They can all name the idol. It's the wizard. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. But the wizard is not exposed as the wooden, empty, fallen idol that he actually is, that's the spoiler, until Toto goes behind the little curtain and pulls it aside. Idols then need to be uncovered. Idols need to be exposed for what they are. And when that happens, I'll tell you, sometimes that's when the riot starts and the anger pops and everything starts to go crazy. It can get ugly. Luke uses a phrase here in verse 23. He is, Luke is a master of understatement. He mentions that Demetrius and the local trade union for silversmiths caused no little disturbance. <laughs> It doesn't say it was a big one. just wasn't a little one. And the reason that they, they, they caused no little disturbance is because, verse 24, the making of idols brought no little business to the craftsmen. You see? So, so once the idol of profit was taken away, no little, you know, that was exposed, no little anger pops. So that money, wealth, and power was the holy trinity of Ephesian power. Look, Artemis isn't just the local town deity. The temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the world at this time. People went on vacation. They went on a pilgrimage to see the temple of Artemis at Ephesus, meaning that most, if not all, of the local economy is reliant upon this glorious temple for tourism. The temple itself was an economic powerhouse. Uh, Dennis Johnson, in his commentary on Acts, calls the Temple of Artemis a banking institution with large cash reserves that was a landlord holding titles to vast farmlands outside the city. So yes, there is pride here. Yes, there is greed here as idols. The wealth itself is idolatry, but this feels like a personal attack. This feels like a personal attack to Demetrius and every one of the people that are gathered there because their identity, you see, their entire way of life, their worldview is, is, is surrounded by, is rooted in the temple and per, made per, you know, personified in the goddess of Artemis. It's rooted in, the, in their devotion to this false god. This is why exposure of your idols is so hard and yet so necessary at the same time because we are so blind to them that we can't see them. You know, uh, if you live in Philadelphia on the old main line, the idol was always, who's your family or what's your name? If you live in Washington, D.C., you'll, you'll know what the idol is because they ask you, who do you know? In New York, they, the idol, you, you know what that is because they ask you, what do you do? Or how much do you make? In Vegas they ask you what do you win. In Princeton they ask you what do you know. Those are idols. But we never seem to be able to find to see to recognize our own. You know, we can we can live here in Princeton area and we can say oh those New Yorkers they make such a big deal out of money and profit. Tisk tisk tisk. Or those left coast types, they make such a big deal out of style and self-expression. Those retirees in Florida are always talking about the weather. <laughs> what do we talk about? What do you talk about? This is critical stuff because Paul says our little gods are no gods at all. Here, here is what exposes them. This is how you expose an idol. Pastor Bob can tell you this in his counseling. It is the word of God. It is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what the word does. It gets in there so deeply when you meditate upon it, when you sit under it, when you, when you hear the preaching of the word, when you're in your small group together and you're sharing the word with one another, that it starts to reveal the intentions of your heart. And now we're at it. Now we're at it. Not just discerning what our idols are, but more deeply discerning the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts that have made that idol and have put it up on the throne of our hearts. Friends, that's what the gospel does. The gospel is like a bright, bright light switched on in a dark room. The word that brings the good news is like a sword. It will either make you one of God's people or reveal that you prefer being a child of wrath. That's a hard truth, but it is the truth. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that if you're a child of wrath, that my calling you a child of wrath, that you're a little devil. Doesn't mean that you are virtually Hitler, Something like pure evil, theologically speaking, by the way. Hitler wasn't pure evil. Hitler, believe it or not, was restrained in evil. No, it simply means that you want to be Lord of your own life. That's what it means. Rather than the God who made you, you want to be Lord over your own life. That's what that means. Here's what you need to remember when somebody like Pastor Bob or a brother or sister in Christ, a friend, a spouse, someone in your small group exposes your idol and nails you and rocks you and the anger or pride or defensiveness starts to pop out. It's going to be hard to do it in that moment. So be ready now. Think about this now. When your idol is exposed and cracks start to form, remember this, your life is in more peril at the hands of your idol than it is at the hands of Jesus. In the moment, it feels backwards. But remember it now so you're ready then. Your life is in more peril at the hands of your idol than it is at the hands of Jesus. And this is ironic. Joshua read for us earlier from Jeremiah 10. On the one hand, their empty idols are. Jeremiah 10 tells us that the the, the idols are nothing. They're like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried. They cannot walk. On the other hand, if we think they have the power to do something, then they do. Every day when I uh, drive my kids to school, we go by this this cornfield. And 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 this cornfield has those, uh, I don't know if they're, I've never walked up to one. They could be plywood. They could be cardboard. But they're these fake dogs or fake wolves or something, right? They're just these wooden, black, painted, cardboard things. But you know what? Apparently, the birds or the deer or somebody thinks they have power. They think they're real. And so they stay away. Apparently, it works. You have things in your lives that that are empty, that really have no power but you think they do. Those have to be not named and, and, and exposed for what they are to free you from those things. And what is so great about the city clerk is he says it. He says to Demetrius and all the idol worshippers, you know what? You think our culture, you think our way of life, you think our social order and our finances are all threatened by these Christians who are preaching this gospel uh, about a holy God and the need for repentance and the forgiveness of sins and the good news about Jesus. But the clerk says our social order is more threatened by you and the idols that we've made than by the people of the way, these Christians. Because like the birds or the deer, we think we need, we think we fear these false gods. These things in our lives, they never deliver. They have so many of us enslaved to them. Money, power, beauty, the list goes on and on and on. They have power because we've given them that power. And and they create confusion. Did you notice twice in the, in the passage, the people are thrown into confusion. They don't even know why they're there at one point. Like, why are we assembled here? Why do we have to get together and say, great is Artemis, the goddess? They're not even sure why. Did you ever walk out of a store and say, why did I buy this thing? <laughs> great is Target of Princeton. You know, like it sucked me in. I, the, I saw the red Target. And I went in, I bought something I didn't even need. We're laughing now, but it's pretty silly. Friends, this is why our culture is so shaky. I'll say it as the capital, you might say, of Judeo-Christian worldview has faded from view, not necessarily a shared religious commitment to a monotheistic God who is God, while we are not, and is given away to a a world of 7.2 billion idols, right? One idol for every person out there. There is such confusion in the world. There's chaos in the world. Everyone thinks they're right, and everyone is bashing somebody else. And that's ideology. That's taking an idea and turning it into an idol. And ideology is leading to anger, and maybe even violence because it's idolatry. Now, of course, I'm, I'm hopeful. I have faith in the power of the gospel. But when your idol is politics and your team loses, is there any wonder why you're angry? When your idol is body image, but your genetics simply don't cooperate, is there any wonder why you might be tempted to cut yourself? If your idol is your portfolio and Apple drops 10% on the NASDAQ, is there any wonder why you're coming home and you're grumbling at your family? See, the state of your heart is in far more jeopardy from those idols than it ever could be uh, by the one who gave you life and breath and everything in this world who wants only to bless you. Repentance is hard identifying exposing and idols is hard and you might push back but that's why somebody like a pastor bob when you're in his care and counsel may show you exactly these things because he's trying to move you from fear to freedom from being captivated to to freedom and release and to loving the lord again which takes us to our last point Uh, Briefly, how not just to discern your idols, not to disclose or expose them, but how to destroy them. How did you destroy your idols? Now, it's really interesting uh, in verse 30, Luke interjects that Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, the the so-called the Asiarchs, there, friends of Paul, they begged him not to go into the theater that day because he would have been torn to pieces. His ministry would have been over. They were convinced of that. Why is that? Why were they so convinced that these people who had apparently, many of them didn't even, not only did not not know why they were there, they didn't know who Paul was. Why were the friends of Paul so convinced that people who didn't even know Paul, hadn't even met him, would tear him apart if he was brought into the theater that day? Because when idols crash down, your idols crash down. And the most important things in your lives are, are threatened. Even by something we call the good news, hearts will raise up, rise up in anger, and do things that you never could have imagined that you will do. A friend of this church is a missionary. He's a missionary to a place that I won't talk about in a city that I won't mention and his name I won't mention because we record these messages, but he's telling people, telling Christians, don't come to the place where he is right now. That what we share as Christians is threatening in that place, in that particular state, under that government, at this moment, and even if they don't imprison you, they may imprison the people that you meet with. Don't come. Don't go into the theater, if you will, of that country. Stay away for now. This fellow, uh, John Chow, this Christian who wanted to bring the gospel by taking a kayak this last week to a remote island off the coast of India, an island inhabited, uh, inhabited by a small sort of enigmatic, uh, highly isolated tribe uh, whose members have killed outsiders in the past uh, whenever they got close to stepping on their shore, uh, people warned this guy not to go. But as hard for them was they're caught in idolatry like every other person on this earth. And while other people can bring the gospel to other places on earth, I seem to be the only person who has a heart and desire to bring the gospel to these people. So I'm going to take a chance and tell them about Jesus and he was killed with arrows. And you know, I'm not going to talk today about his methods or whether it was the wise thing to do or break down his approach. But look, Here in Acts, we have a situation in which Paul is almost put to death by a crowd that is furious because of the powers and the principalities that control them. There are things that are controlling the people in the theater on that particular day, and they don't even know what those powers are. This is spiritual warfare stuff. We so often think that spiritual warfare is happening somewhere else out in the world. Brothers and sisters, it happens in your heart every day of the week, every day of the week, in your relationships, on the job, with people you love, with your family. The Christian view is that Satan doesn't, as we said, go down without a fight. There are spiritual forces. There are evil forces. uh, There are spiritual forces uh, that the Bible says, uh, Bible calls uh, idols and, and demons and principalities and powers. It's very difficult to fight them. And sometimes, when we fight our idols, it almost feels like we're eaten by them. Earlier this year, in practically the same week, you might remember that Kate Spade, who sold her company years ago for $30 million, a very rich woman, and Anthony Bourdain, whose net worth uh, was approximately $16 million. They had everything that you can possibly have in this world. But apparently, with all that wealth, they still didn't have enough joy in their life to live another day. So that so that even when you try to oppose someone else's idols, they can eat you up as well. The Bible says that the one path that strips away your idols, <clears throat> but more than bringing you to just sort of a place of relative safety, gives you peace is Jesus. It's being on the path to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who was killed by a riotous crowd who yelled, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" Even when they didn't, many of them didn't even know who he was or what he did. Jesus walks into the riot. Jesus walks into the theater of of, of the courtroom of the world of the judgment day of all time and says, "I'm going in." And even when his friends tried to stop him and say, don't go today. He knew what the principalities and powers of the world were doing at that time. He said, get behind me, Satan. Even to a friend of his. And said, I have to go to the cross. I have to go there. And he went there to disarm the powers and principalities. He made a public spectacle of them on the cross. He triumphed. Over them. He took upon himself the death, the threats, the chaos, all that is wrong in the world on him, including your sin and mine. Friends, idols are destroyed when you see Jesus dying for you, because you know he did it to put to death all of those principalities and powers that have your heart so captivated all the time. Jesus justifies you for worshiping all that is fake and all of it's foolish and all that is sinful. He justifies you anyway. All the false idols of his heart, he knows that you have them. He can name them, but he's also the one that took on our flesh and and, and knew what it was to live in a world filled with idols. And yet he fulfilled the first commandment and determined that he would have no other gods, but the father. so that he would be the one faithful one to bring peace and life out of death and chaos. That is what the cross does. That's why someone like a Pastor Bob will lead you to the cross over and over and over again because it's the, he, Jesus is the only one who saves To to knock down your menu of idols, it's not like there are a menu of counter-idols. There's only one God. And he's going to lead you there. And he is a God of grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for, for Jesus Christ, the gift of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that though our idols are so prevalent and are so powerful, that your son Jesus has borne the cost so that we can dismantle them in our lives. We can take them apart one by one. Lord, help us to do that in a wise way, not by attrition, but by not...